Try that again. Good morning. Uh, Well, uh, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John uh, by turning to chapter 6, and we're going to read uh, the first 15 verses together. So that's uh, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up onto the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they had wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Amen. Well, verses uh, 1 to 4 of our reading uh, are there to set the scene. Uh, They allow us to kind of get everything set up for what follows. Uh, First, uh, the theme is uh, connected by those first two words, uh, after this. Uh, By starting the chapter in this way, John connects everything that's going to happen in chapter 6 with what has just happened in chapter 5. It's not that they come immediately afterwards in the sequence of events, but John has put these two together to try and show that they have a common theme. Uh, That means that we move in our location from Jerusalem to Galilee, uh, we're supposed to see a similarity in what happens in the two chapters. After all, Chapter 5 recounted the time when uh, Jesus performed one of these great signs, one of these great miracles, uh, in that case the healing of the lame man, and then he goes on to explain what it was all about, but only to the hostility and the rejection of the hearers. He shows that the sign in and of itself was not the most important thing. It was a sign that pointed to him. It was a sign that pointed out who he really is. And so, similarly, chapter 6 will present another sign, publicly pointing to who he is, but once again, when Jesus insists that it makes him equal with the Father, he is rejected. So, from there, verse 1 tells us where the miracle took place. Uh, On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, more specifically, Luke 9 and 10, which introduces the same miracle, uh, tells us that it took place near the town of Bethsaida. 
As we move into verse 2, we also see why the crowds are following him. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They are following him because of the signs. And actually, at first you might think that's a good thing. You know, there's a big crowd of people following him. But they're following him because of the signs. They don't see him. They fail to see that the signs are ultimately nothing. They are inconsequential when you consider who it is that is standing there. All of the signs, all of the wonders merely point to who he is. Even for us, as we read them, they point to the fact that God was standing there. But the people follow the signs and not the one they were pointing to. Uh, Verse 4 tells us when these events took place, uh, specifically within the 30 days before Passover, uh, which would make it uh, about a year on from the events in chapter 2, where in verse 13 the Passover is also mentioned. Uh, now, John is actually making a connection here. Um, when, you know, I've mentioned before how much I love this gospel. Uh, I love the way that it's kind of multi-layered, that he's got a lot of things going on at the same time. Uh, when he writes you know, about the Passover, it's supposed to be more than just simply some sort of uh, date reference, you know, so you can put it in the calendar. Uh, the point of this was to make us think of the previous reference to the Passover. We're supposed to make a connection. Uh, Not only is chapter 6 following chapter 5, and so we can think, well, okay, fair enough, they're connected. The events of the first Passover uh, recorded in chapter 2 also has a bearing on what we read here. Uh, So uh, when we have in chapter 2, verse 23, uh, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. You see the similarity there. In chapter 2, at that other Passover, the people were happy to follow Jesus. They were, they were enthusiastic because of the signs. And as we know, at the end of that chapter, Jesus looks into their hearts and he sees there's nothing there. They're only after the sign. And so, to again, we have this warning, as it were, about these people in this chapter by making that reference. But a sort of a nod, as you were. You know, this Passover and last Passover, a year has elapsed, and yet still the people follow the signs and not him. So, that's the scene setting of verses 1 to 4. And then we've got the build-up to the sign in this chapter, in verses 5 to 10. So seeing that there is this large crowd, Jesus asks Philip how they're going to be fed. Now it may well be that he asks him, because as well as Andrew and Peter, he actually comes from this area. So he's maybe got some local knowledge. So he turns to Philip directly, and of course, poor Philip, he's perplexed as we see in verse 7. Uh, Philip answers him, uh, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, 200 denarii uh, would be the equivalent of someone today saying uh, a year's wages would not be enough. Uh, you know, so he says you know, uh, an annual salary would not be enough to provide even a mouthful of bread for these people. 
I mean, that amount of money was slightly less than a Roman soldier at the time. It was considered a fair wage. Um, in fact, in Matthew 20, verse 2, uh, he's got a parable where, where the owner of a vineyard is willing to give a denarius a day. And that's supposed to be like a, a really generous amount. Um, you have to understand it's a really generous amount to really get why it's so terrible that they're grumbling about only getting that much by the end. Uh, so this amount of money is saying, you know, a year's worth, it's not enough. But even a mouthful of bread. Now, regardless uh, of that, Jesus is presenting an impossible task before the disciples. Uh, Andrew jumps in at this point. Uh, says, well, will they actually have five barley loaves and two fish, although it's actually in the possession of a boy? The task actually just doesn't look possible. Uh, and as we know from Matthew and Luke's account, the disciples, trying to come up with a solution, say, well, we'll just send the people away, that they can go find food for themselves. They can go to the surrounding villages and, and hopefully buy for themselves the food that they need. Uh, any other solution, well, doesn't seem possible. The, the disciples are flummoxed. They're intent on working out the problem in their own strength and abilities, and they cannot do what is required. But of course, Jesus has no concerns. Jesus has no such limitations. And as we know from verse 6, he knows exactly what he is going to do. And this is despite the the shock in verse 10. Uh, Because uh, for the reader, for for us, because we we, we can't see this crowd, we only become aware of the scale of the problem in verse 10 when we find out that there are 5,000 men. Uh, Again, I like how John does this. John likes to kind of build up to a problem, uh, delivering a sort of a sting in the tail that is supposed to raise the eyebrows, supposed to surprise us. Um, In in chapter 5, when we read chapter 5, we read about how the man was healed, and everything is is, is wonderful. You know, it's it's, it's an amazing time. Jesus has healed this man. And then in verse 9, he just says, and it was on the Sabbath. And that little sting in the tail just changes everything. And, and what comes after that, you're thinking, oh no. He likes to build up to it, as it were, you know. And so John here, he's been building up to it. He's saying, you know, yeah, there's a crowd, you know. They've only got this amount of food. It doesn't look likely. But I mean, how many could there be? Maybe a couple of dozen people. There's maybe a hundred people. No. <laughs> the food will not stretch. There are 5,000 men. And of course, we don't know the actual size of the crowd, uh, 5,000 men plus women and children. The scale of the crowd blows everything out of the water. Any solution that we thought was possible, even sending them to the villages around there, would not be enough. There is nothing the disciples can do to accommodate that number. And so it sets up Jesus perfectly what he is going to do, which is what we see in verses 11 to 13. Now, when Philip is asked to solve this problem, his mind immediately ran to the financing of this project. He tried to calculate how much it would cost, and he's overwhelmed. He saw the task as impossible because he was busy thinking about how he was going to solve the problem. It's impossible. Jesus, in comparison, rather embodies that famous verse from Zechariah 4 or 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. I mean, let's be honest. It's not as if God hadn't performed similar miracles in the past. 
the manna and quails in the desert at the time of Moses, uh, the oil and flour of the widow at the time of Elisha. There's even a similar meal uh, recorded in Second Kings 4, verses 42 to 44, uh, where simply there is not enough food to provide for the crowd of people. And God intervenes to the extent that there's an abundance of food left over. God had solved this problem before. God will solve this problem again. In fact, in providing the miraculous food, Jesus is saying, I have done this before. I will do this again. However, I think for us, it's also worth noting that Jesus fed the people through the disciples. I love this. I mean, I don't know about you. I, I, I find my mind blown many, on many, many, many occasions when I consider the fact that God, the creator of heaven and earth, looks at us and says, I'm going to work with you. I mean, I know me. <laughs> and God knows me. And he says, right you, let's do this together. That blows my mind. I think it's wondrous. And here, uh, I mean, we know in, in, in this uh, account in John that the disciples used to gather up the remains, but if you look at some of the other accounts, like uh, Mark 6, Jesus hands them the food to distribute. I love this image. The disciples are completely unable to feed the crowd until they take from the hand of God the things that they are to distribute. They are in a position of total dependency. And when they are in that position, they are in the very center of the miraculous. I think that's a really wonderful lesson for us, <laughs> to be entirely honest. I mean, uh, it, it, it's common for us to try and do things in our own strength. Very often it's only when that strength runs out that we finally turn to God. I think it's in this context of dependency, it's, it, it's in this context that we understand that there isn't really anything that cannot be handled. You know, there are, are many texts in the Bible which are kind of uh, misrepresented in, in this kind of subject. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is, is a common one. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And very often, uh, uh, very glibly, we hear uh, that uh, God will not give you anything you can't handle. You may have heard that. You, you may have heard such a thing. You know, God won't give you anything you can't handle. That's not what the text says. Because I know that that's a lie. In my life, there have been many occasions where things have come along that I can't handle. But, and this is a rather important but, what does the text say? It actually says, with God, there is no temptation that can go beyond your endurance. In God, we can find the escape. In God, we can find the strength to survive. And that's a really important difference. <laughs> it's not that God is not only going to give me what I can cope with. He will give me a life. And in that life there will be brokenness because I live in a broken world and the shards of a broken world will pierce my heart. 
But with God, I will have the strength. With God, we can survive. Uh, Many occasions in my life, I have felt like Philip looking at an overwhelming problem. Knowing that no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I thought, no matter what I did, there was no solution in my own strength. So I know for a fact that if we read that, with our total dependency on God, then this verse is untrue. But when we read it and we understand that in God, then we can survive. Then we can keep going. There is nothing that we can go through that is beyond him. And that's really important. (laughs) That's really important. uh, Hopefully, uh, if we remember that, if we remember it now, then when we get into the midst of, 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 of the utter darkness that life can throw at us, We'll turn to him. Rely on him. Uh, And to be honest, uh, for me, very often I've had to try and do it in my own strength. I've had to try and do it in my own wisdom far too often and realized it wasn't enough. But there is nothing, and this is the truth, there is nothing too great if we're dependent on him. When I have to stand before you like this, if I do it in my own strength, you're all going to be shortchanged. <laughs> but if I do it in that way that the disciples did it, in that utter dependency to take from God and distribute, then we can be blessed. The way that I normally think of it is that if you are ever blessed through any of the sermons you hear from this place, that's God. The rest of it, that's me. But if you're blessed, it's because we have effectively taken from the hand of God and distributed. Because otherwise, it's beyond our ability. Now, with such a miraculous sign as this, you'd think that the people would see him for who he is. However, the last two verses of our text show that the people make a rather misguided response. In verse 14, we see that the people accurately make the connection to the prophet that was promised in in Deuteronomy 18, but they really fail to grasp what this really meant, who Jesus really is. In fact, they actually fail to understand what it is to be a prophet, if I'm entirely honest. In the Old Testament, with all the prophets, the prophets were separate and above the king. A prophet would anoint the king. Uh, The prophets would come and correct the royalty when they were going astray. Uh, The prophets were not at the behest of the kings. And yet, here, the people try and reduce this man of God to their man. This promised messianic prophet is to be reduced to the level of a king. They really don't get it. In fact, throughout this section in this gospel, we see that the people and the leaders do not really understand what it meant when Jesus came as the Messiah. They had an idea of what they wanted. They had an idea of what it was supposed to look like, and Jesus was supposed to fit in with them. That's not how it works. And so they see the sign. 
They eat the fish, the bread sits in their bellies, and they do not see. They decided that here was a new king, a political solution, a source of physical provision, no thought to the spiritual. They were content to appoint him as a king rather than rely on him as God. Now, of course, that's not the first time that people have made such a decision. Um, it, it's, it's very, very much reminiscent of what the, the children have been doing recently in, in 1 Samuel 8, uh, a particular low point in the history of the people of God, uh, because the people go to Samuel and they demand that they were to have a king. And I think the most chilling and disturbing and most worrisome part of it is they say, we want a king so that we can be just like all the other nations. Like the other nations. These were to be the people of God, walking with him, having God himself as their king and their protection. They were to be set apart. They were to be special. They were to be different. And they want to throw it all away so they can be just like any other nation. And so here in John, they expect the king of kings, the creator of heaven and earth, to stoop so low as to be a small king of Galilee. I mean, they actually think they're elevating Jesus. That's how far they've missed the point. That's how far they've missed what is going on. And so no wonder Jesus walks away. They have been shown a sign as to who he really is, but they do not see despite a miracle which says that he has power over creation itself, they miss the point entirely. Now, throughout the gospel, uh, as I've mentioned before, John is intent on showing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited, heaven-sent saviour of the people. That is the, the purpose of the book. It's the reason that he recounts all of these miraculous signs. It's the reason that he records all the claims that Jesus made. Each of the signs that John includes point to Jesus as the Messiah. They point to the fact that he is the Son of God, the one who gives eternal life. That is the reason he writes them all down. Each of the claims that Jesus makes are noted down for that same reason. In fact, as this chapter develops, there will be a discourse between Jesus and these same people who failed to understand the sign. It's a conversation that will leave no room for doubt as to who he is, and that it is only through him that eternal life can be found. Like the signs, we have had a series of these moments, of these claims of Jesus the whole way through. At the temple clearing, he shows himself to be the authoritative prophet, the means of eternal life through the sacrifice of his own. To Nicodemus, Jesus disclosed that he would be lifted up as the source of eternal life to those who would believe. To the Samaritan woman, he says that he is the water. The living water that gives eternal life. Uh, before the Pharisees, he said that he was on a par with the Father, giving eternal life. <laughs> it's not subtle. <laughs> and actually here, uh, in this chapter, Jesus will go on to say that he is the bread of life. Again, the only source of eternal life for those who hear him. And the people are content to have a king. They're happy with the bread. They don't want the bread of life. And I think, if I'm entirely honest, that acts as a challenge to each and every one of us. And very often, when we read our Bibles, it's very easy for us to cast ourselves as the ones who've kind of got it and are in the, on, on the side of good and kind of look disparagingly at these guys who just get it all wrong. But I see a lot of ourselves in the guys who get it wrong. I don't know about you, but whenever you read the book of Proverbs, there's a choice. There's the wise and there's the fool. 
<laughs> and most of the time when I'm reading Proverbs, I like to try and pretend I'm the wise guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can think of a lot of people on the other end of the spectrum. And I say, oh, those fools. And the book of Proverbs doesn't work if you just automatically assume you're the wise. You need to read about what the wise really is and look at yourself and think, okay, God, <laughs> do something. And here, too, I think we make a mistake when we just simply look at these people and think, oh, well, they got it all wrong, but I'm okay. You see, I think there's a challenge here. If all we see here is some bread being made, like those people, we've missed the point entirely. In fact, if we seek Jesus simply to provide for our physical needs, then we settle for something far too small. The one who conquers death and sin stands before you now. The one who does amazing things. If we were to take a testimony of most of the people in this room, there would be this wonderful account of the amazing things that God has done and is doing and in all confidence will do in our lives. We are in the presence of a God who does amazing things. And yet we can allow ourselves to be satisfied with the bread when God stands before us. It is really important that we do not settle for anything less than the presence of God in our lives. So, as an aside, as an illustration, there has been the most wondrous event in the Hebron household. This most incredible thing has happened of late. This wonderful development. Now, most of you will know my youngest son, Ezra. He's, he's probably the, the loudest child through most of the service. Uh, he's, uh, he's a bundle of joy. He's absolutely wonderful. And something fantastic has happened that I feel I'm warranted to share with you right now. He has begun to realize that his father plays an important part in his life. You see, up until now, let's be entirely honest, he's been a mummy's boy. Okay, his entire world revolved around her, you know. And when she smiled at him, his whole being would light up. He was utterly devoted to his mother. He's a bit like his dad. Now, to be honest, the flip side of that was his entire world would collapse whenever she left the room. You know, whenever she left the room for like a moment, his entire world would collapse. He was bereft, unconsolable. Now, on occasion, mommy would have to leave the room, and he and I would have a sort of a friendly ceasefire, whereby he'd look at me and think, well, okay then, and he'd put up with the situation, you know? I, uh, I do remember one night that was burned into my memory. My wife came out to an evening service, which is a rare treat for, for most mums, to be fair. And so she came out to the evening service, and he looked at me, and he was not having it. <laughs> oh, no. And he screamed. I mean, from the second she left the building, he screamed. Now, of course, you know, as, as a parent, you, you, you try everything. You, you, you sing to them. You try and tell them stories. Uh, you walk up and down. You know, you do the whole kind of shaky dance thing with them. Uh, even in desperation, you might even turn on the TV. I mean, anything to make this child stop screaming. No. No, he wasn't having it. And his wee purple face just got screwed up the more. He screamed all the louder because he looked at me and thought, I'm not wanting that. It was a painfully long evening. He screamed every minute of each hour until that wonderful, blessed moment when mummy's key turned in the lock. 
Jenny didn't enter the building. The key turns in the lock. He stops. He looks around. She comes in and he smiles with shouts of mama, mama. We roar. I don't think I could hear properly in one ear for the rest of that week. And yet the second she came in, arms out, face beaming, shouting for his mother. Now there is a reason I share this with you. Um, you see, Ezra was not willing, to be entirely honest, he was not willing to set up a second best. And he was going to scream. He was going to rail against anything that was not the real thing. It didn't matter what distraction I offered, no matter what I waved in front of his face or whispered into his ear, he would not let it go. And if I'm honest, we actually need to be the same. We need to be like that. We cannot settle for anything less than God himself. It's actually very easy in a church setting to be content with the things of God. You know, come to a service, sing some songs, sit there and listening, etc. We can, as it were, be satisfied with the bread. The things God has done. But we need God himself. As I was saying earlier, no, we, we need him so utterly. We need to be so dependent on him. There is no way we're going to get through life without him. There is no way that we can really live without him. We have to rail against anything that is not him. We have to want the life giver to change us now and tomorrow and the next day. You know, so we need to be like those disciples, receiving from him, passing it on. And we cannot afford to be like the crowd who will accept him only on their own terms. We need to see him for who he is, the king of kings, the giver of life. Then we find there is not anything that is too much to bear. Then we can face what will come to us this week. Then we find that he is all that we need. And from there we can truly live with the life that only he can give. That's the lesson of this sign. Not just that he's the creator and has power over creation, but that he is the bread of life, able even now in each and every was to give us life, to renew that life, day by day by day, until we see him face to face. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed come before you just now, conscious that sometimes we are prone to wanting to do things in our own strength, our own wisdom, conscious that all too often, sometimes by accident, we want you to conform to what we want rather than the other way around. So Lord, I just simply pray for each and every one of us that you would indeed help us see. Help us today, even this day, to, to not settle for anything but you and to walk with you and to receive that life from your hand. We thank you that you are a God who says, seek me because I will be found. So Lord, help us seek you. Help us to have that need of you and to not rest until we have you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.